We are in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 20 today. And uh, we've been doing a study through the Sermon on the Mount. Those of you who've been following along, we're going through this incredible sermon from Jesus. And we're coming now into the, the sort of the end of his introduction. Uh, any sermon as an introduction, we're kind of like, hey, this is what the message is about. This is why you should listen to this. And now here's kind of the main point. They tell you when you when you you know you're in an English class, they're like, you should have an introduction, and the last sentence of your first of your introduction should be your thesis statement. Well, Jesus is actually getting to his thesis statements, verse 20, that the rest of the sermon is going to unpack. So let's read the, these key verses. Matthew 5. Let's go ahead and stand together as we read the word one final time to kind of stretch our legs. And honor the word of God, Matthew 5, looking at verses 17 to to 20. These are the words of Jesus. He says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily, for truly, I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, it's never going to happen, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated. The Old Testament is 75% of the Bible. We're kind of in the beginning of Matthew. If you just kind of hold up and look, you can see this here is all New Testament, and this here is all Old Testament. Of the chapters of the Bible, there are 260 chapters that are what we call the New Testament, and there are 929 chapters that are what we call the the, the Old Testament. In fact, the first five books of the Old Testament, maybe if you're reading through the Bible in a year, you're somewhere in like Exodus or Leviticus, you're like, can we just get past this? That is a full 20%, one-fifth of the entire Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And yet, sometimes when we approach the Bible, we're kind of like, yeah, there's the Old Testament, and it's kind of old, it's kind of stale, it's kind of dusty, like we don't really read it. We're like, it's not really relevant for me. We're like, man, I just want to get to the New Testament. We kind of come along, we're like, yeah, there's the Gospels, that's interesting enough, but man, Romans, that's kind of where it's at. Even though the Bible, even though 75% of the Bible is the Old Testament, we often like to sort of just parachute into the New Testament and start the story there. After all, it is easy to overlook the Old Testament. For one thing, it's the Old Testament, and it's going way back into a culture and history. They were like, I don't really know who like any of these guys are, and who's Nebuchadnezzar, and there's laws and a culture I don't really understand. Like Leviticus, there's these genealogies. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? It can feel so distant and, and foreign and strange when you're when you're when you're reading the Old Testament, or if you start reading it and you're coming at it with sort of your like modern 21st century sense of like what is appropriate. And you cut, initially, right out of the gates, it's actually full of blood and violence. And you, if you're kind of squeamish, you're like, I don't know if I like this. There's stuff in there that, that slavery and, 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 and polygamy and all kinds of ugly things. There's sacrifices and lots and lots of blood. Other people will come to the Old Testament and say, well, it's just kind of boring. Come on, like, I, just, I, I want something that's relevant for my life today and, like, having to think about what this means. I'd rather just kind of get the verse of the day from the Bible app and maybe a quick devotional from Daily Bread and call it good. So we neglect it. 
other people rightly recognize the Old Testament is God's word. When, when Paul wrote all scriptures given by inspiration of God, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's like the Old Testament, what God has written, it's given by inspiration and it is profitable. It's useful for us. It's like, okay, got it. We agree with Paul about that. But sometimes we approach the Old Testament as just kind of an anthology of good children's stories. Like, hey, there's Adam and Eve, and now we kind of just go along, and oh yeah, now there's Joshua and the Jericho, and then go along a little further, and David and Goliath, and there's sort of these individual stories that don't really have any connection with each other. Or you're kind of teaching it, treat it as a, a grab bag of sort of helpful sayings, like let's reach our hand into the bag and kind of pull out our our, uh, our fortune cookie verse for the day, and you know, you get, grab a proverb, grab a psalm. And just to kind of make it a little bit better, there's an occasional prophecy about Jesus, but otherwise it's just kind of... And for many people, the main relevance of the Old Testament is just to give us a collection of stories and some sort of good moral lessons to be like, hey, look, what, what Saul did was bad, what David did was good, be more like David, don't be like Saul, end of story. I would suggest to you that all of those approaches to the Old Testament, one of them teaching it as irrelevant, the other treating it as outdated, the other treating it as sort of just an interesting anthology of good stories. All of those miss the incredible beauty of what God has given us. All of those miss the point of what the Old Testament and indeed the entire Bible is all about. In this section of Scripture, Jesus is declaring the enduring relevance, the enduring value, the enduring purpose of the Old Testament. That was his Bible. I remind you, Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. No, Not a single verse of the New Testament had been written when Jesus is speaking. His Bible was the Old Testament. That was the Bible that Jesus had, the Bible Jesus quoted, the Bible that Jesus is referring to. And what does he tell us here? He tells us that the Old Testament is all about him. He's telling us that the Old Testament, all of it matters. And he's telling us it's all about the heart. He's giving us what the Bible is all about. So we come to the end of his introduction. He comes to his thesis statement, which is verse 20. You've got to have a righteousness that's greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You've got to have a righteousness that exceeds the, most, the greatest righteousness of the most righteous, super-duper holy people on the planet. The rest of the sermon is going to unpack that. Now, he's already kind of built the... kind of had a good runway for that, where the Beatitudes, where he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after what? Righteousness. The first of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, like those who see that they're not righteous, they're the ones who are going to have the kingdom. But now he comes to his main point of real righteousness that should mark the Christian, real righteousness that marks those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's not a righteousness that's just on the outside. It's a righteousness that's of the heart. It's not just part of your life. It's all of your life. He says that, that's the hallmark, that's the litmus test of do you belong to his kingdom, to, his, to the realm of redemption. So verse, you know, verse 17 mentions the law and the prophets, and then you go over to chapter 7, look at chapter 7, verse 12. Uh, the, the structure of the Sermon on the Mount is absolutely incredible. You have a series of blessings at the beginning, and then we come to a thesis statement that talks about the law and the prophets. And then Jesus comes to his conclusion. Notice what he says in chapter 7, verse 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the what? The law and the prophets. So kind of, a, okay, the law and the prophets. Like, what are they all about? He tells us, then he comes to the end and he's like, this is the summary of the whole thing. And then he ends with a series of warnings that match the blessings that he begins with. It's incredible. It is a beautiful, beautiful sermon. By the way, right at the center of it is what we call the Lord's Prayer. 
The whole point of this righteousness is a relationship with a holy God. All right, so that's all sort of the, uh, what is going on structurally here. But here's the big point. We need to understand and apply and obey the Bible in the way that God intended. Right? And Jesus is telling us what it's all about. Do you ever go along in your devotions or reading the Old Testament? You're like, I have no idea how to apply this to my life other than just look for like a good moral lesson. Jesus is going to help us here. He's going to give us the path for using it rightly. So how do we think about this? Well, we come back to Matthew 5, verse 17. He says this, Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. In other words, that tells us there were people in the audience who were thinking, hmm, he's come to destroy the law or the prophets, right? Like they, they, there's an objection in people's minds. He's talking about the kingdom of God. Now, they're, they're, there's sort of alarm bells going off in people's minds. They've read their Old Testament. They know the kingdom of God is this, this age of fulfillment. When all of God's purpose has come to be, it's going to be this time when everything kind of changes. Jesus has these run-ins with the Pharisees throughout the Gospels where they have all of their rules and regulations about keeping Sabbath, and he doesn't follow their rules. And so they're thinking, hmm, he's, he's kind of a revolution. He's a radical who's sort of like, they're accusing him of like just unhitching himself from the Old Testament and like throwing it to the side and, and sort of establishing himself as a new lawgiver. And Jesus says, don't think that I have come to annul, to abolish, to do away with the law and the prophets. Now, what does he mean by the law and the prophets? Notice it does not say the laws and the prophecies. The law and the prophets. This is a shorthand in Jewish thought to say, hey, the whole Old Testament. Okay, so you've got the law. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then you've got the prophets, which is sort of everything else. Sometimes they would throw the Psalms in there and some of the writings. But he's saying, okay, the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, everything that God has revealed, don't think that I have come to just throw that in the garbage. Don't think that I have come to just sort of replace that with, hey, you can forget all that. I'm going to give you something new. Because I'm not come to abolish this. Rather, to fulfill it. Now, that is a staggering statement. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I have come to fulfill the law. I have come to fulfill the Old Testament. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the whole point of the Old Testament is Jesus. It's all about him. That's our first, first truth here in this text. Jesus fulfills the law. When you are reading the Old Testament, we need to understand this. Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the culmination. He is the goal of the entire Bible. It is all about him. It is all about Jesus. That is what he is declaring. So Jesus is saying, I've not come to annul, to set aside, to ignore, to just say, yeah, you can ignore the Old Testament. I'm going to give you some new rules. Those people today who are like, well, you know, all that stuff in the Old Testament about like sexual ethics or about marriage between, between a man and a woman, like that's all, you can throw that out because Jesus didn't care about that. Now, Jesus himself is saying, what I, am, what I am preaching and declaring is fully in harmony with what God has already said. It's not contradicting it. It's not erasing it. Rather, it is fulfilling it. It's not like he's taking an eraser to the first part of the sentence saying, well, that was wrong. Rather, he is completing the sentence. You want to think of it in those analogies. Not erasing what God has said, but finishing the story. It's like you're reading a story. You're, you're reading the installment. Um, I think here's a really good example, whether you're, some of you may be into this, like the Lord of the Rings. You're going through the first two books of the trilogy, and you're like, hey, that's a good story. But then you get to the last one where all of the story kind of wraps up and all of the threads get woven together. It's sort of like everything that went before now makes sense. It's not saying everything that went before didn't actually happen, but it's saying it's now been brought to its goal. It's been brought to its end. It's been brought to its climax. In other words, when we say, when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, 
He's saying, I am the culmination of the story. The culmination. Now, we could think of this in a few ways. Some people have looked at, okay, what ways? There, there's at least nine different views of what it means for Jesus to fulfill the law and the prophets. So this is by no means a, a passage that's like cut and dry. So some people say he fulfills the prophets by fulfilling specific, uh, specific prophecies about him. So back in Matthew 1, just look back in Matthew 1, uh, we get this kind of idea. Uh, verse 22. Uh, now all this was done that it might be, here's our word, fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord, by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. So we could say on one level, Jesus fulfills the prophets by, hey, there are these specific, discrete predictions about the Messiah. Uh, in chapter 2, um, Herod asks the, 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 the chief priest, the scribes, like, hey, where's Messiah going to be born? And look at chapter 2, verse 5. They said unto him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not thou least among the princes of Judah. So again, there are these individual predictions that Jesus fulfills. So that's certainly true. Um, but again, notice the text does not say he came to fulfill certain prophecies. He came to fulfill the prophets, like the whole, the whole trajectory, the whole message. So it's not just a case of finding, here's a prediction, here's a fulfillment, but the entire trajectory of the story, uh, he fulfills that. Some people will say he fulfills the law because he kept the law. Actually, we're just saying that. And that is absolutely true. Jesus never, ever sinned. Jesus never, ever violated God's law. He did what none of us could, and that was live a perfect and a sinless life. And so he fulfilled the law by keeping the law. Absolutely true. That is glorious. He meets the demands of the law by being the final sacrifice on the cross. What I'm saying is this means not less than those things. It means more than this. Yes, it is true. Jesus fulfilled specific predictions. Yes, it's true that Jesus kept the commandments of God. Yes, it is true that he meets the requirements that, that the sinner shall die by dying on the cross. But more than that, he is the culmination of the entire story. Let me give you an example of this. In Matthew chapter 2, Jesus goes, the, you know, his, his parents take him to, uh, to Egypt. Um, and chapter 2, verse 15 he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now, that's a quote of Hosea 11, verse 1. And you read the story, and you're like, that's, that's actually about Israel. That's about the Exodus. God's saying, I brought Israel up out of Egypt. I've called my son Israel out of Egypt. Yet Matthew's applying that to Jesus. Here's what he is saying. The entire story of Israel finds its fulfillment in Jesus. That Jesus, in a sense, is the, 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 the true Israel, like encapsulated in one person. Like, it's all about him. The whole story and purpose of Israel is fulfilled in Jesus. So Jesus came to fulfill the law, fulfill the prophets. In John 5, 39, he tells the Pharisees, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. In other words, the center, the point of the entire Bible, the Old Testament, is Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you go through the Old Testament and you're like, man, there's a tent peg being driven halfway into the ground at the tabernacle. That means the deity and the humanity of Jesus. Like, we're not talking about like reading into the details. Rather, looking at the whole story and say, how does this story point the way to Jesus? How does the big picture land us at the foot of the cross. 
Here's what I'm saying. Jesus is the hero of the story. He's the destination at the end of the journey. He is the substance that is casting the shadow. He is the the better Moses who does not merely declare God's law, but is the word of God incarnate. He's the perfect David who comes to rule not merely Israel, but the entire world. He's the final sacrifice who came to be the once-for-all solution to sin. He's the perfect priest who represents his people to God. He's the perfect Jew, the true Israel, the one bringing about a new exodus, leading a new people of God to the new Jerusalem. In other words, all of God's plans find their perfect fruition in Jesus. Think about the Abrahamic covenant. He's the seed of Abraham. The the, the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in Jesus, who is the ultimate son of Abraham. He's the aim of the Davidic covenant. He's the completion of the Mosaic covenant. He's the inaugurator of the new covenant. The entire story of the Bible comes to Jesus. It's not about some prophecy chart with arrows and laying. It's about Jesus. Every aspect of the Old Testament points to him. It's like the Old Testament are a series of tributaries that are all flowing into the Mississippi. And the Mississippi emptying itself into the Gulf. And Jesus being the the culmination that all of those, those threads in the Bible are pointing to. It is all about him. So it's not just a case of him saying, I fulfill this part of it but not that part of it. Some people come along and they'll say, okay, the law, we've got the moral law, the Ten Commandments. We've got the ceremonial law, all the stuff about the sacrifices. And we've got the civil law, the rules for Israel. Jesus fulfills the civil law, the ceremonial, but not the moral. Okay, for one thing, the Bible doesn't actually divide the law up that way. It could be helpful to think of the law of Moses that way. What the Bible tells us is Jesus fulfills all the law, all of it. The, the, the shadows that are sort of like the, the ceremonies and all of that, he fulfills them by bringing about the reality. The civil law, he fulfills that by creating a new nation, the church of Jesus Christ. The moral law, he fulfills by bringing it to the culmination of himself and the, the light of it passing through him like a prism and saying, here it is in its succinct statement, love God and love your neighbor. Not changing or lowering the standard, but saying, here's what it looks like to keep this with a new heart. So Jesus fulfilling the law means the law is going to be different on the other side. Like the light coming through a prism, it's going to be different. And so as Christians, on one level, we're like, man, what God has commanded in the law is still binding on us, but we need to understand what God has said in his word through the lens, through the reality that Jesus is what it is all about. We're under the new covenant. And that's where Jesus is going to get. You need to have a new heart. We're living under a new covenant where, where not only does God give us, here's the righteousness that's required of you, but here's the spirit of God who's going to live it out. So this changes the way you read the Bible. Let me, let me give you, like, how should you read the Bible? You should read the Bible as it being all about Jesus. He tells us that it's all about him. And in, in Luke 24, after his resurrection, he has a Bible study with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it's beginning with Moses and the prophets. He showed how it all is fulfilled in him. When you approach the Bible, don't approach the Bible as an anthology of moral lessons. Listen, the gospel is not try harder. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not, and here's a good example that we get from like Joshua. Try to be more like Joshua. The gospel is believe in Jesus. And so we need to read the stories of Joshua and the stories of David and Joseph and his brothers, not as just like moral tales, but as in some way showing us why we need Jesus and showing us what Jesus would look like. He is the hero of the entire thing. 
So don't, don't read it that way. Don't read the Bible where it's just like, well, this is more moral things that I need to do, 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 a greater list of things I need to do, but how it points us to the one who completed it. Don't treat it like an instruction manual. You know, you're like, you're going along and your, your car starts making an awful <laughs> noise on it, so you pull the instruction manual out and you're like, okay, let's see what's supposed to be going on with the front end of my car. And you Google it and you, you find out, okay, what makes a you know, horrible grunching noise from the front right axle and you realize, oh, the CV joint. Sometimes we read the Bible this way, be like, hey, I've got problems with my marriage. So let me look up M under the back and find everywhere the Bible talks about marriage. Okay, that's good. But the, the Bible addresses something far more foundational, and that is my need for a Savior. It's not just a self-help book, right, to be like, Hey, live this way, your marriage will be better. See, what the Bible says regarding marriage assumes what it says about my need for a Savior. The reason why there's problems in any marriage is because of sin and because of fallenness, right? And, and so the solution needs to be more than just like, hey, here's a better way to communicate. The solution needs to be, what is going on in my heart that's leading me to be angry and unkind towards my wife? What is going on in the wife's heart that's leading her to be vindictive and bitter towards her husband? The gospel addresses that, not just surfacey level kinds of things. Other times we treat the Bible as an ethics book to be like, okay, man, there's some big issue going on in our culture. Let me find out what the Bible says about that so I can have a right stand. That's good. But remember, the point of the Bible is not just giving me right information, but putting me right with God. It's, if it's about Jesus, the point of the Bible is redemption. The Bible is primarily about addressing my sin. It is primarily about addressing my vertical relationship with God. And as a result, then my horizontal relationship with other people gets fixed. That changes everything. That changes everything. It means the hope for our world is Jesus. That means that the hope for your marriage is Jesus. That means that the hope for your parenting is Jesus. It means that the Every solution we look for for problems runs through Christ because he's the point of the Bible. It means he's the object of my affection. It means that he's the hero of the story. It means that the future, our hope for the future is Jesus. In other words, it's all about him. It's all about him. Now, that doesn't flatten it out to be like, well, we don't learn any moral truths. Like, no, we learn plenty of moral truths. But see them all in light of the glory of the cross, which is the blazing center of the glory in the plan of God. So when Jesus says, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, he's saying, I'm bringing the story to its completion. And yes, my relationship to the law is different now. Jesus doesn't just say, I can throw the law out. He's like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fulfill it, and now there's a different relationship. So you know, what do, how do I as a Christian think about the Mosaic law? I think we can look at it and say it reveals to me the character and the holiness of God. Paul in Galatians 3 says the, the law shows me my need for Christ, that it's the, the tutor to bring me to Christ. Paul says in Romans 7, I would not have known sin without the law. So that's what the law does. It shows me that I need a Savior, but it cannot save me. The law will show me how God intends a, what a holy life to look like. But we need to understand this. Under, we need to... To, to, to read it and to look at it and to interpret it through the lens of Jesus having already come. He's established the new covenant. He's put the Spirit in our hearts. So Jim read uh, 2 Corinthians 3, where Paul contrasts, man, the new covenant, this is the, this is the culmination, this is the glory. It's not that the old covenant was bad, but it has now been brought to its end. God has given his Holy Spirit to his people and written his law in our hearts so that we are able to obey him from 
the heart. Which really brings us into the second assertion Jesus makes. The first one's sort of the most foundational. Spend the most time on that. Uh, he's come to fulfill. It's all about him. But we now come to this next statement in verses uh, Matthew 5, verses 18 and 19, where Jesus is saying you can't set apart any part of the law. It all has to be fulfilled. In other words, it's all important. He says, verse 18, for verily I say unto you. Now, Jesus uses that formula when he's going to say something really important. He says, truly, I'm saying to you, I'm making, it, I'm making a really important assertion here. Listen up. For those who think that I'm just trying to throw the law in the trash, he says, till heaven and earth pass. In other words, that's not going to happen tomorrow. Like, this is, this, is a, this, is a, this is an idiom to say, like, forever, right? Permanence. One jot or one tittle. So one jot is the, is the yod, the littlest of the Hebrew letters. It almost looks like an apostrophe. Okay, so, so to the smallest letter, and then the, the tittle, the kariah, which means literally a horn. So think of like a seraph on a letter or a, a dot on an I or a, the cross on the T. He's like the smallest parts of the law. He says no part of it will pass from the law till all be fulfilled. What a contrast, right? Heaven and earth, really big. He's like, the creation's not going to pass away. We're not going to enter. Like, history's not going to end until every little part of God's word is brought to fulfillment. So in other words, he's saying there's nothing that God has written that's going to just be sort of randomly set aside. It is all going to be fulfilled. He says all of Scripture must be fulfilled, the big parts and the little parts. Again, notice the word there, fulfilled. If you like circling words in your Bible, you circle that in verse 17, circle it again in verse 18. The implication here, by the way, is once it gets fulfilled, stuff changes. So once Jesus dies on the cross and says, it is finished, to die, everything has been fulfilled, uh, man, my relationship to the Mosaic Covenant is forever different. I'm under a new covenant. I'm under a new administration now. I don't have to go off for sacrifices. Those food laws have, finished, have met their purpose, have met their goal, they've met their destination. They don't apply anymore, not because they've been set aside, but because they have been fulfilled by Jesus. He's saying God's word is unchanging and forever relevant and forever true. It's not going to just sort of change with the tides of time till heaven and earth pass. None of it's going to pass away until it gets fulfilled. You recognize Jesus is assuming the enduring authority of God's word. He's saying it doesn't matter where you stand in history, where you stand in culture. God's word's the authority, not you. It's none of this sort of standpoint epistemology stuff where it's like, well, from where I stand, I think this is what is true. No, what God says is what is true. That is the standard. Jesus in his own life, when Satan comes along to tempt him, what does he respond? It is written. What is he quoting from? Deuteronomy. When was the last time you did devotions from Deuteronomy? That was on Jesus' lips. The entire Sermon on the Mount is basically a commentary on the Ten Commandments. Uh, on like, here's what the law really was about all along. It was about the heart. When Jesus engaged in debates with the Pharisees, when, he, when they ask him about the Sabbath, he says, have you not read about David? He goes back to the Old Testament. When they ask about marriage, about sexual ethics, he says, have you never read that from the beginning God made them male and female? When the, when the Pharisees come along and they, they question him, where does he take them? Back to Scripture. When he comes along to assert his own authority, he goes back to Scripture. When he comes to defend the resurrection before the Sadducees, do you remember the place about the burning bush where God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Back to Scripture. 
When Jesus begins to talk about Judas betraying him, again, he quotes the Old Testament. Over and over again for Jesus, he's saying what God has said, what God has written, that's the authority. It's not going to be set aside. You can't just say, I'm going to reinterpret that. Jesus' point here, everything that God said is true, and everything God said will be fulfilled. Now, here's the thing that's pretty sweet. It all gets fulfilled in Jesus. You're like, when does this get, when is everything fulfilled? It gets fulfilled in either the first coming of Jesus or the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus comes back, everything that God has said, everything that God has promised will be brought to its conclusion. Nothing is going to be left of his promises that's going to be undone. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Okay, Jesus is what the promises of God are all about. So we're now living in the day where the fulfillment has happened. We're living in the day where the fulfillment has already begun. We're, looking at, we're living in the day that First Peter says the, the angels were, are, are, are desirous to look into, the prophets were prophesying about. We're living there. It's absolutely incredible. Now, verse 19 draws out the implication. Um, notice that word, therefore, whosoever, therefore. Okay, so in light of what he's saying, you can't just randomly set aside God's law, throw it in the trash. Jesus is what it's all about because all of it is going to be brought to fulfillment. Here's the implication for you and me. All of it's going to be fulfilled. Here's the implication. All of it must be obeyed. Whosoever therefore shall break or loosen or cast aside one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It says, under this, this kingdom, now the kingdom is Jesus, kingdom is not so much heaven. Sometimes we read kingdom of heaven, we're like, oh, it's just heaven. It will be great. And the kingdom is referring to the rule of Jesus here and now, right? Um, it's inaugurated, it's going to be brought into its conclusion someday. He says, you, in God's economy, greatness is determined by conformity to his word. Think of all the ways we measure greatness today in sort of like evangelical Christianity. Be like, oh man, this guy's got a big church or he's published a bestseller, or he got to go on Sean Hannity and like talk about something, or this person's got a big media platform or a big social media following, and we measure greatness often by nickels and noses. Jesus is like, no, greatness is measured by doing and teaching God's law, right? Teaching what God said. Um, now, is he talking about the Old Testament, the, these commandments that God gave through Moses, or these commandments that he's about to give? And the answer is yes. Right? Because what Jesus is saying is not contradicting what Moses said, but is finishing the sentence, is explaining it. True greatness. True greatness is found in obeying Jesus. Uh, he makes that, makes that statement again and again in Matthew 7. They, like, people are going to stand before God one day and he's going to say, depart. The, the, the people who did not do his will. Uh, he finishes the sermon with that memorable analogy of the, you know, the wise man built his house upon the rock and the foolish man built his house upon the sand. Who's the foolish man? The one who hears what he does but doesn't actually do it. Actually doing and living out God's law. Now, he uses this category of like the least and the greatest. There are some commandments in God's word that Jesus himself says, okay, the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And there are other things that are still true and still binding, that, that, that don't have that first prominent place, doesn't mean that we are free to disobey them. Not at all. 
But it does say that loving God and loving your neighbor, that, that is crucial. Start there and everything else flows from that. If you love me, he says, you'll keep my commandments. But the point here that he is making is not to say, yeah, make sure you really obey the important ones and the other ones we'll get around to. His point here is to say that even disobeying the least commandment, the, one, the things that we'd be like, well, yeah, that's kind of a respectable sin, saying that, that really matters. James puts it this way. You keep the law and the whole law, but you violate in one point, you are guilty of violating the law, violating the whole. Um, again, not saying that every sin is the same or every commandment is weighted the same. He does, he, he hits the Pharisees for saying, oh, you're tithing your mint, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. It's, like, it's important to get the main things, to keep the main things the main things. There are, there are indeed main things, but it doesn't mean we're free to neglect the rest. So sometimes as Christians, we, we're, we're guilty of this. We'll kind of, like the Pharisees, be like, well, I thank you, O oh God, I'm not as other men are. I thank you that I'm not like those abortionists or like those people who, who affirm homosexual marriage or, or you know, I, I don't do drugs. I thank you that I'm not one of those people who's a drunk. And we have sort of a list of really public, obvious sins that we're like, we don't do these things, and praise God, like, don't do those things, right? But meanwhile, we tolerate in our hearts pride. We tolerate in our hearts greed. We tolerate in our hearts uh, a critical, judgmental spirit. Uh, and we're sort of like, well, at least I'm not doing these things, but we're, we're sort of willy-nilly violating God's law in other areas. We're like, I've got no problem with gossip. Right? Like, That's fine. I'll go gossip. I'll go around criticizing. I'll go around spreading half-truths or things that I don't know if they're actually factual or not. But I don't do these. Jesus is saying, no, all of it matters. What God is after, this is where we get in verse 20, is a righteousness that's not just about keeping certain rules while ignoring others. A righteousness that is about a brand new heart that obeys God. Just a, a, a point here before we, before we move on. The least of these commandments, the greatest of these commandments, one of the implications here is that we need the entire Bible. We need the entire Bible, right? Um, Psalms and Proverbs are, are, are a wonderful place to read. Reading the Gospels is, is joyous. But we also need to be reading Leviticus. We also need to be reading the books of history. We also need to be understanding what, what is being said in 3 John. Some people gravitate towards certain parts of the Bible. Like, man, I'm really into prophecy and just camp out in like Daniel and Revelation and try to figure it all out. But don't spend any time in Romans. Like, we need to read the, the whole Bible and preach the whole Bible and declare the whole counsel of God. And when we, we, when we think about something about a biblical issue, not just like, hey, here's one verse that says this. But man, what does the Bible say as a whole about this? How does that influence the way that I understand this? All of Scripture is important. Don't read the Bible saying, Okay, here's a tricky part. How can I explain this away? Or how much disobedience can I tolerate in my life before it really becomes a problem? No, it's all important. It's all important. So Jesus fulfills the law, telling us it's all about him. We read the Bible through this lens of it being all about Jesus, with him being right at the center, with the gospel being the main message, with sin being the main problem, with Jesus' work being the main solution. Jesus affirms the law, telling us that it's all important, it all matters. We don't just sort of pick and choose which parts. We don't set up a canon within the canon being like, the red letters, those are the ones that are non-negotiable, but they can, we can kind of pit Jesus against Paul. No, we can't do that. It's all God's word. Every word comes from him. Every command is an edict from the king. 
We now come to verse 20, where he brings this to, like I said, his thesis statement. This is what the entire Sermon on the Mount is all about, verse 20. So, so notice again how this four, okay, there's this, this explanation from what went before. Like, keep all of God's law for, and to this extent, I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed. And the idea is like greatly exceed, not just like just barely got ahead by one run eked out in the 10th inning, but no greatly exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you cannot be saved unless you have this kind of righteousness. You cannot enter into the kingdom, the sphere, the, the realm of God's redemptive rule. Remember, being in the kingdom is something that's a reality now for God's people. It's not just when I die, when I go to heaven. But when you become a believer in Jesus, you become a citizen of the kingdom, awaiting the final uh, consummation of the kingdom. Jesus is saying, being part of his kingdom requires this kind of obedience, a righteousness that far exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, put aside for a minute all of the baggage we bring when we hear the word Pharisee. If I, if I were to work, walk up to one of you today and be like, man, you're a real Pharisee, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Bad thing, right? We understand the word Pharisee because we, like, we read the rest of the Gospels like, these guys are useless, like they're a bunch of hypocrites. Put that aside for a minute. When Jesus says this, the Pharisees and the scribes were understood by the people of his day to be the most righteous, godly people. In most people's ideas, they said, if there's only going to be two people who make it to heaven, one will be a scribe and the other will be a Pharisee. Okay, now, the scribes, that was sort of an occupation a legal scholar. These were the guys who spent all their day just studying the Bible. Can we all agree studying the Bible is a wonderful thing? I commend study of the Bible to you. The scribes were the legal experts who studied the law of God. Like, we want to understand this. We want to understand how to obey it. We want to give our days and our lives to getting this. Pharisees, that referred to kind of a, a sect within Judaism. It's kind of three main, main ones. There's the, the, the Herodians, which are all about political power. So they're kind of like, I don't know if you want to think today of like Christians who are really into like political activism. and Okay, that's the Herodians. Then there's the Sadducees, and they're kind of like the elite. They're the guys who are like getting to write columns in the New York Times, and they're getting their pieces published by the Atlantic. And they're the ones coming along being like, you know what, some of the stuff about like miracles, like we have a problem with that. Angels, like, come on, we don't, we don't buy all that stuff. So they're kind of, the, if you will, using an anachronistic category, theological liberals. They're, they're the ones who would be sort of flying the rainbow flag in front of their churches. That's the Sadducees. And then the Pharisees, they would be the fundamentalists. They would be the people who are like, we believe the whole Old Testament and every word of it. In fact, we are so serious about it, we're going to put fences around it. Like, if God said, thou shalt not kill, we're going to figure out exactly what killing is, and we're going to add interpretations to make sure we don't even get close to the line. They took sort of human tradition, and they added it to what God had said. Out of and it's a good desire to be separate, by the way, the word Pharisee means the separate ones. They were big into the doctrine of separation. They were big into being distinct from sin and from the, the culture and the influence of Rome. So most people would be like, yeah, man, the Pharisees, they believed the Bible. They would have been able to sign the statement saying, yes, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They don't just, the, the Sadducees only took Genesis through Deuteronomy. That was their Bible. The Pharisees are like, no, we accept it from Genesis to Malachi, or in their Bible, Genesis to Second Chronicles. We accept the whole Old Testament. But here's the problem. What was wrong with their righteousness? Because most people would say, 
That's what we want to be. We want to be like those Pharisees. Look how holy, how separate. Look at how high their standards are. Jesus says, you got to do better. So you think, well, we've got to just, we got to out-Pharisee the Pharisees. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, you need to do what the Pharisees do, just sort of more hardcore. He's saying, you need a, a righteousness of a different quality entirely. Not just different, a, a greater degree of Pharisaical righteousness, but a different quality of righteousness altogether. That's what he's getting at. He says, you need to have a greater righteousness than what they have. Um, the way this is put in the, in the Greek, or there is absolutely no chance you will ever enter the kingdom. Absolutely no way, Jose. You're not going to be there. Absolutely not. A greater righteousness is required. So I just want you to grasp how staggering and jaw-dropping and shocking this would have been to people in Jesus' day. They would have heard this and, and come to the conclusion, if the Pharisees ain't going, none of us are going. Right? If, they don't, if they're not righteous enough, then none of us are righteous enough. So what was wrong with the Pharisees' righteousness? I mean, they're, after all, they're punctilious, they're zealous, they're studied in their adherence to the law. They, they have good scholarship behind it. Well, in Matthew 23, Jesus contrasts it, and here's what he says is, you guys are really good at cleaning the outside of the cup. But the inside is full of filth. You're like whitewashed temp, uh, 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 sepulchers where you, know, you come by and you paint the outside of the tomb and it's very pretty and very beautiful, but inside, dead men's bones. The problem with the Pharisees' righteousness is it was merely external. It was just about looking good on the outside to men, but the heart was untouched by it. The problem with the Pharisees' righteousness is led them to be really self-congratulatory. So Jesus goes on in the, in the rest of Matthew 5, and he'll talk about, like, you have heard, don't commit murder, but I say unto you, if you're angry at your brother without a cause, like, that's the issue. The Pharisees could pat themselves on the back, being like, I have never murdered anyone. Jesus is like, okay, great, but do you have a heart that wants to murder? That's a problem. They would say, I've never committed adultery before, but he says, you ever looked at a woman to lust? Because it's not just about what you do, it is about what you desire. God is looking not just at the outside, but at the heart. And if all you do is avoid the worst expressions of sin on the outside, he says you've not even begun to be righteous. Real righteousness begins not on the outside, but on the inside. It's about having a heart that actually desires what is right before God. So a Pharisee could congratulate themselves on not murdering. They can congratulate themselves on not committing adultery. They could pray. They're like, look at us, we pray, but they do it only to be seen of men. Look at us, we fast, but we only do it if we have an audience. Look at us, we give money to the temple, but we only do it when there's an audience. Simply, they kept the law only on the outside. Jesus put it this way, you draw near to God with your lips, but your what? Your heart is far from me. So that's the kind of righteousness you have. Now, what is righteousness? It's ethical behavior. If you only have ethical and good behavior, it's nothing more than an outside kind of thing. Jesus says you'll never enter the kingdom. You'll never, you'll never be saved. Good place for us to evaluate. What, what, kind, what kind of righteousness marks your life? Is it just an external show? But you know what's going on. If we were like to project your thoughts onto the screens up here, would we see thoughts that are worshiping God that are like, oh God, I love you? Or would we see thoughts that would be like, I'm really only here at church to sort of satisfy a demand. When can we get out of here? 
a check-the-box mentality that's just, I'm going to go and do the bare minimum to be regarded as a righteous person in the eyes of other people is a fake righteousness. If we were to project your thoughts up here from the last week, would we see pure thoughts or thoughts that would be absolutely shameful? If we were to sort of be able to see the heart and peel it back when you're you're, you're thinking about another person, are we seeing thoughts that are loving and that are forgiving and kind, or are they thoughts of anger and hostility and bitterness? Even if it never leads to striking someone, even if it never leads to, to shouting at someone, even if it never leads to murder, God looks at the heart and what is rooted in the heart we are responsible for. Is your righteousness defined by your own man-made rules? I'm righteous because I don't listen to this radio station, I don't watch these shows, I don't read these things. Or is your righteousness defined by the standard that God has laid out in his word? Does your righteousness lead you to careful examination of yourself? Or is it like the Pharisees where it led them to constantly critique everybody else? Judge not, you be not judged. So Jesus says, if you don't have a greater kind of righteousness, a righteousness that's in a completely different class, you'll never enter into heaven. It's the difference between sort of uh, monopoly money and real money. Unless you have the real deal, you'll never enter heaven. So what does this righteousness, real righteousness entail? Well, I, I don't think Jesus is primarily thinking about like justification by faith. I don't think that's what's in view in the context here. Like we see that in Paul, like God declares us righteous and we're given the righteousness, the robes of Jesus. That's true, that's glorious. But he's talking here about practical righteousness that's lived out in our daily lives. If you want to see what this real righteousness looks like, take this afternoon and read the entire Sermon on the Mount. That's what Jesus is saying. So if you're, going to, if you're a citizen of the kingdom, that's what your life should look like. It involves wholeness of heart, and behavior being one, is not about out-Phariseeing the Pharisees, but about having a different, com- completely different kind of righteousness all together. So how's this going to happen? Is Jesus simply saying, try harder to be more righteous. Is Jesus simply saying, All right, just having this external thing, now you need to have a righteous from the heart. Have you ever tried to change your own heart before? Like, I'm going to change what I feel and want. Like, that's pretty hard to do. Really? You know, like, um, changing your own heart would be like performing a heart transplant on yourself. Kind of impossible, right, to do. You need a surgeon to give you a heart transplant. Say, what, what is being implied here is this greater righteousness, this changed behavior in heart, needs a new heart. Yeah, it involves wholeness, but it requires newness. Like, where's that going to come from? You're going to enter heaven, like, Something's going to have to change in your heart. Well, I think it's fascinating. There's another place where Jesus is speaking where he uses nearly identical language about entering the kingdom of heaven. And he says this, unless a man be born again, he will never see the kingdom, much less enter it, right? In other words, if I'm going to have this righteousness that is greater, I must have a heart change that comes first. I must have the new birth. And beloved, this is exactly what the prophets predicted. This is not, Jesus is not coming along saying, forget everything Moses said. The passage that that Michael read for us where he says, you need to circumcise your heart. You need a new heart. You need a heart surgery to be able to obey God the way he wants you to obey. In Jeremiah 31, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you, not like the one I made with your fathers. This new covenant is going to involve me writing my law in your hearts. In the book of Ezekiel, God says, I'm going to take the stony heart out of you and put a heart of flesh in you. I'm going to put my spirit in you and you will keep my law. 
being able to live this greater righteousness requires me having a brand new heart, and I can't do that myself. One thing, I look at the standard God's given me here. I can't do that on my own. I can't even do that with God kind of giving me a little bit of help. I need to be made new. I need to be born again. So my question to you this morning is, have you been born again? Have you been born again? Have you received that new heart, that new nature? Now, here's one of the ways you know. My life begins to actually look like this greater righteousness. It's not just God being like, hey, you're born again. Go on with your life. God changes the very, think of the heart as the control center of your life. The control center of your life changes. Your life will change. Claiming to be born again but not having a changed life is like claiming to come into contact with high-voltage power lines and being like, yeah, that was fun. Like, it's going to change you. It's going to alter you. Being born again, new direction. If any man be therefore in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This requires a new heart. It requires that new birth. And here's the thing that's pretty sweet. When God saves me, he puts a spirit in me, according to Romans 8, verse 4, so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. One of the ways that Jesus fulfills the law is by enabling his people to fulfill what the law was always all about, which is obeying God from the heart. So when we read the Bible, yeah, the Bible does speak to behavior, but it speaks to what is underneath the behavior. It speaks to the heart. That has huge implications for how we counsel, for how you parent, for how you think about sin in your own life. Don't just stop at the surface. I'm so thankful that I no longer do this thing. Okay, does my heart still want it? Or is my, is my heart being conformed to the image of Christ? God's not just interested in what we do, but in why we do it and in what we desire and what we believe and what we value underneath that. It is all about the heart. This greater righteousness goes all the way down to that. So as we think about the Bible, not just the Old Testament, the New Testament, we need to read the Bible and understand it is all about Jesus. Is your life all about Christ? Or is Jesus just another thing on the agenda for the week? We read the Bible and we realize it's all important, not just the interesting parts or the parts that are like my life verse, but all of it. Do I like take the Bible seriously as this is going to be my guide, this is going to be my worldview, this is going to be the lens through which I interpret reality? I'm going to do what it says even if it costs me. I'm going to break off a relationship if that's what God calls me to do. I'm going to, to do what is costly and difficult if that is what God shows me in his word. And if it's all about the heart, have you gotten that new heart? Let's bow together for prayer.